that true belief, true faith, cannot simply be based on one experience. It cannot be simply based on a big miracle. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. These are Christ's words to us as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. Eyewitness accounts are valuable when validating whether or not an event took place. Though there can be a fair amount of scrutiny given to ancient accounts like the one in our gospel lesson for this week. We may not have the benefit of time travel to satisfy the naysayers, but we do have the benefit of a historical record that shows a world being transformed by men and women who put their faith in the risen Lord and, by the power of His Spirit, work to bring about His kingdom on earth. As Father Ward points out, seeing doesn't always lead to believing, and the scriptures are filled with accounts of people who saw clearly with their eyes, but still did not believe in their hearts. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we would like to thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you have enjoyed what you're hearing from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a five-star rating and review. Your positive feedback will help us reach more people with this podcast. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. So remember, the Gospels are based, as are much of the Scriptures, on eyewitness accounts. Now they're not histories in the traditional sense. The secularists and the, the professors and all these time, docu- you know, scholars, some like to say, well, no, they're not really histories. Um, you know, and sometimes they say that with the idea that they're not accurate. And that's hogwash. These are eyewitness testimonies, the same you would expect in a court of law, that have been confirmed by God Himself and have been attested to through time and preserved. They're not traditional histories, though, that they're going to give you every single detail. They're not traditional histories in that, no, there is a, a purpose, there is a uh, method to why they include certain things and leave certain facts out. So we're not trying to get a journalistic or you know newsworthy type account. We're only given the high points that point us to the greater message that's trying to be conveyed. And that's exactly what John says at the end of this chapter when he says his purpose. These have been written for a purpose that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That He is the Son of God. And by believing in Him, you'll have life. Eternal life. So now we have Jesus, the experience of the ten, including John and Peter, who had already seen the empty tomb, but they hadn't seen the Lord face to face. Mary Magdalene sees the empty tomb, tells John and Peter, then goes back. They leave. They can't believe it. She stays and then she sees the Lord. And isn't it neat, it isn't just her but the other women too, that 
Jesus reveals Himself first to women. This is significant because in the Jewish religion at that time, the testimony of women was considered to be not only not valid, but actually just totally worthless. In fact, there had a saying had developed that uh, it would be better to burn by certain rabbis, it would be better to burn the law than to hear the testimony of a woman. And so women were looked down upon in certain segments of the Jewish society. And, and so the fact that women were the first to testify indicates a validity, a strong validity to what is being conveyed. Because if you were more concerned about convincing people rather than the truth, then you would never have women be the first to bear witness that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive and that He's risen from the dead. Now, today in Orthodox Judaism, women have, I mean, have very little rights. It's bad. If you're a woman, it's bad if you're in Orthodox Judaism. So you, that same spirit, that same thinking hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years in that segment of society. And so, verse 19, so when it was evening on that day, so just in the evening, the first day of the week again, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, so they were still afraid of the authorities, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So Jesus had to somehow go through those walls to walk through those walls. Now you may have heard me say this, and it's not unique to me, but an astrophysicist, Hugh Ross, explains why this would be necessary. But in order for me to walk through this wall, in order for me to penetrate and go through the present physical nature of what we have, I would have to be more than three dimensions. I would have to be multidimensional. So Jesus' body was at least six dimensions uh, in order for him to penetrate and walk through that this would be like, you know, nothing. You know, um, like knife through butter, even more than that. I mean, just like air. Because Jesus was not an apparition. He wasn't a ghost here. He wasn't some spirit being. Sometimes people like to think that. Absolutely not. He was physical. And so his body was the same body that was nailed on the cross, but it was now of a new substance. It was transformed. It was no longer confined to the laws of physics that we have currently. As a result, our resurrected bodies are going to be like Jesus' body. And so there will be um, a, a resemblance to what we look like now. Uh, but our bodies will no longer be subject to disease and decay. They will not be flesh and blood. They'll be similar in kind, but different in substance. So Jesus came and stood in their midst, and He said to them, Peace be with you. Those are, that's actually probably the most powerful word, words to say to someone. because, And that's why Augustine, one of the great early church theologians, wrote his classic, The City of God. And his contention was that we all desire to be at peace. And to be at peace does not mean the absence of conflict with your neighbor, even though it includes that. To be at peace inwardly means that you, you have no worries, that you know why you're here, that things are calm, they're stable, secure. 
And so when Jesus is saying, peace be with you, not only is he saying, don't be anxious now, guys, stop worrying, don't be afraid. But man, rest in me. It's going to be okay. And you've got a great future ahead of you. That's kind of what's being um, conveyed here. And he doesn't just say it once. Uh, He says it twice. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. So see, there's a continuity. Same body, but it's been transformed and it's been healed. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So, Jesus not only then declares peace upon them, and He is the Prince of Peace, and He is the means of our peace with the Father. He's our means of peace within. Uh, He's our means of peace with one another. But He commissions them. He gives them work to do. And He says, uh, He says, okay, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. What he's basically doing is he's, he's saying the same thing he said when he gave them the Great Commission later. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, who's given him the authority? The Father. Go therefore. So the same authority the Father's given Jesus, he's given us. So when it says, I'm commissioning you or I'm sending you as the Father sent me, I'm basically, he's saying, I'm giving you that authority. And when he said that, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some of these liberal scholars, they like to say, well, this is just another account. This is a different take on Pentecost. Pentecost was one take and this is John's take. I'm thinking to myself, John was there both. The reason why Jesus did it this way was before you can have the outpouring of power, you have to have authority. So this was laying the groundwork for Pentecost, which would come 50 days later. So when he says, receive the Holy Spirit, he's basically saying, after he says, I send you out, I am now giving you the authority to move. And the only way you're going to have that authority is the Spirit. Because remember, the Spirit takes from me and will disclose it to you. So in order for them to move in the authority of Christ, when Jesus leaves, they've got to have, it's got to be with the Holy Spirit. Also, the Holy Spirit is the power source. And in life, for anything to work, you must have two things. You must have the authority to do it, and then you have to have the power to do it. So, for example, a police officer cannot do his or her job unless they have the authority to do it. Otherwise, they're going to be a criminal, right? And then they have to have the power, which was their gun. Now, we have the authority by virtue of what Jesus has done and Him saying that I give you that authority, but the power to actually go ahead and see it happen in our lives, both inwardly and outwardly, is the Holy Spirit. And the basis for all of this goes back to why Jesus went on, died on the cross in the first place. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, at first glance, people might think, well, does this mean that we have the power to forgive? No. Jesus has given us the authority to proclaim forgiveness. Jesus is giving us the authority to be able to say to people, your sins will be forgiven if you repent and turn to Jesus. Now, 
On what authority can I say that? By my authority? Absolutely not. But I can say it because Jesus has given me that authority and I can proclaim that good news to people. So, actually in the Greek, it's the uh, preterist tense, which is, um, uh, or the perfect tense. I forgot, I get them all confused. But it's kind of like this. The best way to understand the tense that's often used in the Scriptures that we have lost in the English language, but it's still in the Greek, is when someone says, I have been married, or I am married, or I have been married, right? Okay, I was married in 1993. That happened once in time. But that statement also conveys the fact that I'm still married. So, when we're saved, we're still saved. You know, we're still walking in it. It's still real. It's still part of it. Even though it happened in the past, it's ongoing. So, when Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have already been forgiven. That's literally what the Greek means. So what it means is they're already forgiven. There's already forgiveness for them. However, they have to do something. They have to receive that. If they don't receive it, then their sins are still retained. They're not forgiven. So that's kind of the, the um, way to understand that. So... Uh, okay, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which means twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. So same thing that Mary had said. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. See, again, this is no ghost. And so he, and he gets picked on, right? Here, here's the thing, though. I believe most of the other disciples would have said the same thing. But they never had the opportunity because on that first day they saw Jesus. So there was no, you know. But he wasn't there. So he was saying, hey, I need to see it to believe it. I can't believe he's alive. Then after eight days, so that would be the following Sunday because the eight days would include the day, the first day of the first week. And then, so you have the second Sunday. So it would be the next Sunday, a week later, really. The disciples were again inside and Thomas this time was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. So why would Jesus do this again in the same context? Not only because Thomas was there, but also it affirmed the fact that what the disciples had said originally was true. That Jesus had appeared to them in the same manner. And notice that Jesus, having not been there technically, in, pre in physical presence, when Thomas had told them, hey, unless I you know, feel, Jesus echoes Thomas's words and says what Thomas had already expressed. He says to Thomas, verse 27, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. That's active, right? We, uh, unbelief is an active state of mind. Belief, faith is to be an active state of mind. Jesus said, hey, now, it's, it's true. You can believe. And then Thomas answers. And this is another reason why God allowed it to be so. Because with a week passing and hearing everybody say this and saying, oh, I can't believe it. It can't be true. And then Jesus appears to him in person 
And Thomas exclaims one of the greatest declarations in all of Scriptures after he feels Jesus, sees Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. Both were statements of deity. Both for a faithful Jew would be committing blasphemy if they weren't true. My Lord and my God. So John, again, isn't just saying Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God. He is showing us through the experience of people interacting with Jesus and saying, whoa, it's true. He is my Lord. He is my God. How can this be? It's because of who He is. And then Jesus says to him, because you have seen Me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And so this also highlights the fact that true belief, true faith, cannot simply be based on one experience. It cannot be simply based on a big miracle. Because true faith is walking with God day by day, and every day is going to, cre- is going to create challenges that will include an element of uncertainty and will include an element of, do I follow what God says or don't I? And so even if Jesus is with me and I'm walking around with Jesus, you can say, well, uh, you know, that's a pretty big pressure there, right? I'm going to really toe the line. But how can I really grow in the faith and, and, and in love if I've got someone hanging over me all the time? You think of your, your kids. As parents, we provide them everything they need. We give them directions. We tell them this is the right way. We try to show them by how we live. But ultimately, they've got to make their own choice, and they do not want us to be in the back seat of the car everywhere they go. Because I'm sure when you are thinking back to when you were a young adult, you would not want your parents in the back seat of the car everywhere you go. And so there is an element where the parent has to let go and let their son or daughter fly out of the nest and be on their own and learn from their own. Jesus does the same thing with us. I mean, the fact of the matter when people say, oh, if Jesus was just here, if God just would be right here. I mean, every time God did that, there still were problems. The disciples screwed it up, right? People of Israel, after they see these miracles, and actually, the Bible teaches us, the Word of God teaches us, that when God shows Himself in more direct ways, there's a greater accounting. There's greater judgment. Because too much is given, much is required. And so what Jesus is saying to the whole world is, hey, this is great. Thomas, that's great. The disciples are great. But you're going to be blessed when you trust in My Word even when you can't see. And you know what? Adam and Eve were in the same situation. Adam and Eve saw a lot. But they also were in a situation where God wasn't around and they were tempted by the devil in the form of a snake. They knew better couldn't just say, oh, well, God, if you were here, I wouldn't have done it. Well, then why would you have not done it? Just because I'm here? All right, so let's wrap things up here. Verses 30 and 31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So there is the whole emphasis John shows us who Jesus is by His miracles. 
His nature and His power, right? And then how do people respond? And that when they trust in Jesus, when they know who He is, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Messiah for the Jews, the Christ, the Anointed One. It's all predicted. Son of God would be more for the Gentiles because the Jews wouldn't like that term so much. Son of God, that harkens back to the, you know, the gods and all that. But Jesus is not the Son of God in the sense that a, uh, the Greek mythology gods were. When Jesus says, I'm Son of God, it means I'm unique, the second person of the Trinity. I'm not biologically descended of a human being. That's the Son of Man title, which actually was a messianic title and used most often by Jesus and was the one that the Jews would be familiar with. But by Jesus, by John saying He is the Christ, that's for the Jews. By saying the Son of God, that's for everyone, Jew and Gentile. And so that everything's been written to point us to this reality and then we put our faith in that and when we put our faith in that, it marks the beginning of a new life in which we can face the challenges of life all the while knowing that God is with us and we're growing in love for God and our neighbor and we are headed for eternal life. So the whole thrust of John's Gospel, reveal who Jesus is, and that when we put our trust in Him, we have this new life. And you can see the, 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 the challenge, the ups and downs that one goes through, but yet Jesus is there every step of the way. That's why the Gospel of John was written. And so next week, we'll come to the end of our study. We'll look at the last chapter, the epilogue. Uh, I put epilogue for some of the notes. It should just be the uh, John's uh, mission or um, statement uh, or purpose for writing. Uh, so if you see epilogue, um, if you got, probably you probably didn't because I made extra copies, but some of you may just cross that up and just say John's statement of purpose. But next week, we will look at how G, uh, some more of Jesus' appearances, uh, as well as how he reinstates Peter by giving him an opportunity to affirm his love for the Lord three times. Because remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. To learn more about our church, please visit stbartston.org. Again, that's stbartston.org. You can also connect with St. Bartholomew's on Facebook and Instagram through the handle at St. Bart's Anglican Church. And you can connect with this podcast on Facebook through at Transforming Lives Together Cast. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. God bless. You.